Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and show us what you would want us to see through this, this new book that we're starting to study. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at the book of Lamentations. It uh, full title in the King James is the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Uh, it basically in Hebrew, it's called Icha, which means how. How did how did all this happen? Oh. It's in the question mark. Uh, the Septuagint called it Lamentations, and, and we in our English version have called it Lamentations from that point on. The book was written sometime between 587 BC when Jerusalem fell to the, the latest possible date would have been uh, 570 BC when, when Jeremiah died. But we think it was real close to the fall of Jerusalem because he's looking over Jerusalem and saying, you know, how has it fallen? You know, look, look how bad it is. Um, some people do not believe that it's written by Jeremiah because it's a poem and it's not written in Jeremiah's normal, normal format. Uh, so we want to look at that. It really is a lamentation for the fall of Jerusalem. It's a very kind of depressing book for four, four of the five chapters. In the last chapter, he's praying for deliverance and for their return. Uh, so, and it is a poem in the Hebrew. The uh, chapters one, two, and four all are in an acrostic. Each letter in the beginning of each verse is a letter of the alphabet, of the, of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 22 verses in each of those chapters. And these, this poem is in, in triplets in one, two, and th in one and two. So he gives three points, goes to the next verse, gives three points, goes to the next verse. And you can see it a little bit in the, in the King James Version. If you look at it in uh, NIV, they maintain that three-version three uh, formatting on it so that you can see the three points on each and the way they break it up. Uh, you have to look for it in the King James. Uh, in chapter 3, it has 66 verses. And it goes three letter. The first three verses start with the letter A, the second three uh, the uh, four through six start with uh, Beth on down through the through the alphabet, and they are still in triplets. And chapter four does couplets. It's only two two uh, like like statements in each one. And so the way he has formed it in Jewish poetry is he's done parallelism, which means he puts three things together that all say the same thing in different in different words. That's part of their poetry. They have parallel, and then they have synthetic or comparison. They say one thing, and then the next point says something totally compares it with from the opposite point of view. Uh, so these verses in this book are in uh, parallel statements. So, uh, you know, so he just says the same thing three times in a row, which also makes it somewhat difficult to read because it's, didn't you just say this? Didn't you just say this? And he says it three times in a row because that's the poetry style that he's using with it. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? Uh, chapter 5 does not have an acrostic, even though it's 22 verses long, so he stayed with this, the same style. But in that one, in Hebrew, each of the verses has 12 syllables. So that he did 12 syllables in verse 1, 12 syllables in verse 2. Now, obviously, in English, we do not see 12 syllables. You have to be reading it in Hebrew to see the 12, 12 syllables and the pattern of logic that he's using on it. So this is where we're at with the Book of Lamentation. It was a poem. It's got a lot of structure in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, and none of that shows up in the English, right? Because when they use the word something that begins with Aleph, then we're not going to see letter A sticking in front of it, uh, just like Psalm. Uh, 119 is an acrostic. Uh, every set of verses have the same letter for the first one. So everything from one to, I think it's eight, uh, has the same, begins with the same Hebrew letter, Allah. And then the next set starts with Beth. Uh, so that they work their way through the through their alphabet, eight verses in each one. And then they go to Gamil, 
Dalet and all the way through the Hebrew language, this one would have done the same thing. If we read it in Hebrew, the first first verse would start with Aleph, second verse would start with Beth, third verse would start with Gamil, and then on onward onward to it. We don't see that in our in our English translation of it because our our words don't translate the same, to the same letter. Um, so we have this going on. Uh, the theme of the book is kind of written, everybody uses the same term, it's kind of like a national funeral dirge for, for Israel. They're no longer in existence, so it's kind of a very sad uh, uh, dirge type uh, poem. Uh, for, for them. the fall of Israel. The fall of, well, literally the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of, the fall of the Judah, yeah. the, the, the southern kingdom. And even though Jeremiah had prophesied it over and over and over to the people, they still did not repent and did everything opposite of the way he, he told them to do. Uh, they kept throwing him in the dungeon. They kept throwing him in cisterns. You know, when you read the book of Jeremiah, you see poor Jeremiah it was abused terribly. And God kept saying, go back and talk to him. And you can almost picture him going, uh, God, they, they, they mistreat me every time I go go there. And he started being a prophet at a very young age. And God told him, you know, that nobody's going to listen to you. I would hate to be Jeremiah when, when you're told right from the beginning, you're going you're gonna to teach all, the re all of your life and nobody's going to respond. Uh, what a call. Now, uh, Pastor, you're going to teach at that church and nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to take what you're saying for the entire time you're there. And you're going to be there until you die. Discouraging. <laughs> very discouraging. Very discouraging uh, uh, message. And, you know, that's why at one point Jeremiah said, I said to myself, I will not speak your word anymore. And then he, then he goes on to the next, next sentence. Your word burned in my mouth and I could not help but speak. And I've had that happen at times. Well, God, I can't say that. It's just, you know, like, I know I got to say it. I know I got to say it. No, I'm not going to say it got to say it and you have and you end up having to say it because God just burns it uh, you can't help sometimes but speak what God is telling you to speak and this is where Jeremiah was so am I right that um, this is the fall of Jerusalem but it's not the destruction of the temple or is this the same time this is the destruction of everything 587 BC was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians okay. Solomon's temple is destroyed now it's not Herod's temple, which is later on. Okay. Uh, well, well, yeah. When Ezra and Nehemiah come back seventy years later, they start. They build a small temple, and the older people were weeping when they saw that temple because it looked so insignificant compared to what they, at least what they remember. And then over time, Herod the Great built to it and built a great monument to, uh, around it. And that was what was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans when they destroyed Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has been destroyed at least two times by foreign, by foreign powers. Babylon destroyed it and they rebuilt it 70 years later when they, were, when they got out of captivity. When Cyrus sent them back to reform Jerusalem and build a temple. Then uh, Rome destroyed it and and took everything, took every brick down, and, and it was rebuilt over the years by, by other people. And now it is now the capital of Israel and today's world. So Jerusalem has been torn down you know, on several occasions and been rebuilt. So this is a you know, problem because it's God's seat of authority. It's where he's going to rule. Satan has always been trying to destroy Israel and Jerusalem. And the whole reason being is if he can, you know, he tried to destroy Jerusalem because Jerusalem was going to be the seat of authority. God was going to reign for the for millennial kingdom from Jerusalem. So he tries to get rid of Jerusalem. He's tried very hard to kill his, all the Jewish people because originally if he could kill the Jewish people, then the Messiah could not come because the Messiah had to be of the seed of David. And so if he could kill off all the Jewish people, then the Messiah couldn't have come. God would be a liar and Satan could prove that he didn't tell the truth and didn't know the future. So he tried to destroy them. After the fact, he's trying to destroy Israel because Israel is going to be 
the centerpiece of everything in the millennium of the tribulation in the millennial kingdom. So again, he's trying to destroy Israel. This is why anti-Semitism is so uh, big a deal. It's not just human beings that are behind the anti-Semitism. Satan is behind it. He's trying desperately to destroy Israel. Because if he can destroy Israel, he can prove that God doesn't know the future and that God lied in this prophecy. So his goal is to destroy Israel. The next thing he wants to destroy is the church because the church lifts up God and and, and pulls people out of, out of hell to, into God's kingdom. So he hates both. But his main goal is against Israel because if he can destroy Israel, he can say, God, you, did, you didn't know the future, so I, I've defeated you. And that's his main goal right now. He knows he can't defeat God directly. So if he can destroy Israel, then he can say, God, you don't know the future. You're not as all-powerful as you think you are. Or as people think you are. You know, I, I stopped your, your goals. So this is why there's such a big cosmic battle and it is all centered against the Jewish people. And God at this point is starting to call the Jewish people home to Jerusalem because time is getting short. And there are many Jews that are saying, we just want to go back, you know, especially in places where persecution and anti-Semitism is really rearing its head again. They're like, we need to, get, we need to go to where our home is. And uh, this is happening more and more. And God said he would call his children home in, in the end days and bring them all together. And that will make them an easier target for the world to attack. But God says, I will protect them. So this is all of what's going on. And, and this is the first fall of Jerusalem, at least while Israel uh, possessed it. David took, took Jerusalem from um, before and made it into the capital city. And now we're at the point where it falls and is destroyed by Babylon. The temple is destroyed, the walls are knocked down, and the city has been left defenseless. They, they took a lot of people away as slaves. Right? He took everybody away pretty much. Right. He left a very small remnant of people. Uh, with, that was the habit of the Babylonians. He took the majority of the people away. He took all the uh, nobles. He took all the merchant class. He took most of the most anybody who knew anything was taken and left just the poorest of the poor behind. And part of that was to keep them from rebelling against him. Because uh, the first couple of times he left kings in charge and they rebelled against him uh, on two occasions. So he took and replaced those kings and he finally just said, okay, I've had enough of you guys <laughs> and, and took them. And the same thing is going to happen when Rome comes along. They rebel, they rebel, they rebel. And Rome says, okay, we've had enough of you. And they come, and in both cases, it's very interesting. The reason that the temple was destroyed was because the fire melted the gold from it and made it get into the cracks of the of the of the stones, and they took it apart to get to the gold. And that was both the Romans and the Babylonians that did that. So, and God let that kind of fire start because He wanted them to, to know this is not what's important. Because in both cases, the temple had become the focus of worship, not God. And this is the problem. When something becomes the focus of worship, there's a problem. We worship God, not the building, not the, you know, not the crucifixes and the, and the saints and everything that are around or, or the leaders of the church. If we're worshiping anything but God, there's a big problem. And we need to be able to understand God knew that that was what they were doing to the temple as well. Those who were worshiping at the temple. Most of them weren't worshiping at the temple. They were worshiping idols anyway. And the handful that were worshiping saw the temple as something more than it was. And this is what Jesus said later on. He goes, when you swear, you know, number one, he said, don't swear. Just let your word be true. He goes, you all are swearing by the temple and by the altar and he goes, you're not, you're, if you're going to swear, you know, make your oath to God and not to the thing. So they had turned the temple into an idol, which is kind of hard to think of. You know, the temples where they worship God, and it became an idol. The offering of their sacrifices became an idol. It just became something they did because it was what they were supposed to do. And unfortunately, many Christians do the same thing. 
oh, I got to go to church. If I don't go to church, I'm not pleasing God. I've got to get to church. Now, I'm going to say church is very important. It's wonderful. But it is not the most important thing. Worshiping God is what's important. And if we're coming to church just to, just because we have to please God by coming to church, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. If we're giving our tithes and offerings just because we have to please God, we're doing it for the wrong reason. We could be going through and reading the Bible just because I think I have to do it to please God, and we're doing it for the wrong reasons. And if we're doing, doing those things, even though they're good things, for the wrong reason, we're not going to get the blessing for having done that. You know, reading God's word is wonderful. This is how we get fed. This is how we grow. We meditate on it. But if my attitude is, all right, God, you see, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. That means I've got to read three verses of three chapters every day. All right, God, I finished my three chapters. If that's all we're doing, you might as well be reading some other book. You know, read the tale of two cities or Moby Dick or, you know, if that's all you're trying to get out of it, you're just reading it as a book of literature. Now, God's word does not return void, so I would rather you have read, read it anyway, but you're not growing. You're not getting blessed by doing that. Coming to church, great place to come. We sing, we worship, we edify one another. We, we get a message, hopefully, by a good pastor that's teaching us. And, you know, but if we're just coming to show up, God, I'm putting in my time. You know, I clocked in my hour for the week for you. If that's all we're doing, then we're not getting anything. And this is all of what's important. Why? Why do we do what we're doing? The temple had become an idol to the people. Even in Jesus' day, the temple was an idol to the Jewish people. Now, they wouldn't say that it was an idol, but it had become basically an idol. Uh, the word of God to the Jewish people are almost an idol. I went to a synagogue one time, and I watched what they did when it was time to bring the Pentateuch out. The Pentateuch is locked in a closet. They make a big ceremony of unlocking the closet. It's got its covering on it. It's on a scroll. They walk it around the entire building and everybody's reaching out at it. And, you know, and it's just, you know, uh, now it's wonderful. Maybe some of them are reaching out and saying, God, that's your word. I, you know, I'm ready to hear. But for many of them, it's become an idol. It, it's just a thing that, they exalt, and then they open it up, they read it, they use a silver silver uh, uh, pointer to to trace it so that their fingers don't, don't touch it and smirch God's word, uh, and they roll it up, with, and they wear gloves and everything so they're never touching this thing. They roll it back up, cover it back up, make a big procession with it, and put it back in the cabinet and lock it away until, next, until the next Sabbath. And nobody ever touches it again until seven days later when they start the whole process all over again to with that ceremony. Now, do I think everybody in the place was, you know, not you know, not saying this is God's word? No, some of them probably were saying this is God's word. Others were just, there it is, the book. The book. It, it's so special. And I don't want to make fun of them because Christians do the same thing. Uh, I know people doesn't matter how beat up and old their Bible gets, they cannot discard it. They may put it on a shelf and keep it, but because it is God's word, there is no way they're going to get rid of it. You understand what I'm saying? Things become lifted up and high that shouldn't be. And we need to be very careful that we don't do that ourselves and keep things. Some people, the music that they sing in church becomes their idol. Don't dare take my hymns away. Don't dare take my choruses away. Don't dare take the new songs away. Don't dare mix them up. You know? uh, and this becomes their idol, the way they worship. And we need to be careful because the, when we're worshiping, it's the who we're worshiping that's important. Not the how, not the where, but who are we worshiping. All right. Now this book, first chapter, is all about the ruin and misery of Jerusalem because of sin. The second chapter is God has given up on Jerusalem. He has finally said, I've had enough. Third chapter is Jeremiah's grief 
for the affliction of Jerusalem. And then he starts announcing his trust in God. So it's kind of an interesting chapter. It starts out very negative and then starts working into, God, I still trust you, even though all of this stuff's going on. So Jeremiah has the right attitude, even though he's heartbroken. His city, the capital of his nation has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The fourth chapter is talking about the former glory of Israel contrasted with its present state of misery. And then the fifth chapter is Jeremiah's prayer for mercy to God. So the last chapter is kind of the uh, upbeat chapter, if you want to say an upbeat chapter. It's still not very upbeat. But in the course of the five chapters, it's the most upbeat of the, of the five chapters. All right. Chapter 1, verse 1. How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princes among the provinces. How has she become a tributary? She weeps sore in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among her, all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of the great servitude. She dwells among the heathen and finds no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feast. All her gates are deserted. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are, are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become the hearts that find no pasture. They are gone without strength before the pursuers. Jerusalem remembered in these days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hands of the enemy and none did help her. The adversary saw her and did mock at her Sabbath. We're going to stop there just to start looking at some of this. So here is Jeremiah. How has does this city sit solitary? Now this is from a Jew's point of view, this is a big deal. This is the capital. This is God's seat. This is where the temple was, or is, or was at this time. How can this beautiful city of God be emptied? Yeah, kind of for us, it doesn't have quite the same impact, but if we went to Washington, D.C. and found it totally devastated and totally empty, now, some of us might rejoice the all those politicians are gone, big, you know, hallelujah, but that was not the way they felt. But you understand what I'm saying. It's the symbol of the country. It's the symbol of religion with the temple, and it is gone. And Jeremiah is saying, how can it sit solitary, this city that was full of people, that had such a large population? How is she become like a widow that was great among the nations? Right? You've lost your husband. You, know, you, were, you were a top dog, and now you are nothing. And you know, he's, he's really bewailing this. He says, your princes are the providence. How is she become a tributary or literally slaves to other nations? So the people became the slaves of Babylon. This nation that was once great, going all the way back to David where he had huge nation and up and down for for the generations, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But even during those bad times, God was blessing the people generally and they were bringing people into their land, not being made slaves. And so this is Jeremiah's lamentation. Oh, beautiful city, how can you be fallen? Now Solomon's temple was made, was totally covered in gold and Jerusalem sits on a mountain, and when the sun would hit that gold, you could see it for miles and all over Jerusalem. You would see the temple. And from what I understand, even in today's world, the Dome of the Rock has that same polished metal. I don't know if it's gold or copper, but they can see it from a long distance away when the sun hits it and reflects off. Satan has usurped God's place on the, on the Mount, Temple Mount and put 
his building there to be the shining star in Israel. And, you know, so we see this going on, and this is Jeremiah's weeping about this. How can all of this have happened? And then he goes on, she weeps sore in the night, her tears upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Now, in this chapter, every time you see comfort, you can put console in there in its place. None are there to console her. And it says that she is weeping. And the description of this period of time are the people were weeping as they were led out of Jerusalem. Their city had been destroyed. Everything that was the center of everything they did was destroyed. The people when they, who did worship had to go three times a year to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. So when they went to Jerusalem, they thought about the worship of God, whether they were going to worship God or not still brought the idea of this is where I go to worship God. This is where the sacrifice this is made. This is where we make our yearly sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. This is where we put you know, the, the celebration of tabernacles, the celebration of the Passover. All of that stuff happened in Jerusalem. And the people are going, it's lost, and they were crying. And, and here is Jeremiah saying, all of Jerusalem is weeping. And none comfort her. You know, none of their gods comfort are there to comfort her. And from his point of view, not even their God was there to comfort them because he had abandoned them as far as, as Jeremiah could see. God, you have let this happen to your city. And he, just like we are, when the bad things are happening, go, God, where are you? Why did you, I know I've been prophesying this, but why did you abandon your city? Why did you let the temple be destroyed? And they all basically thought, well, maybe God will put us in captivity, but nobody's going to destroy the temple. Even in Jesus' day, that was the attitude. You know, uh, we have the temple here. We, God is dwelling in this, this, this city. Nothing can happen to us. You know, we, we have God on our side. And even though God kept saying, I'm not on your side right now, you're, you're, you're living in sin and I'm pulling away from you, they still kept thinking, God is on our side. We've got the temple. We've got the priest. This is God's city. Nothing can happen to it. And this is a problem that they're looking at. And it says, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. And this is treacherously, un unfaithful, deceitful. So everybody that Israel trusted turned away from them. And all through this period up till now, if you read Jeremiah, you read, you read 2 Chronicles, you read 2 Samuel, you see how they kept trying to buy help from the other nations. And all those nations, on one occasion, the, enemy, the, the nation took the money and attacked them. You know, and didn't defend them. You know, they kept trying to buy help instead of trusting God. And this is where the really interesting thing comes, in, even in our lives. Are we trying desperately to buy help from the world, or are we trusting God? And it's kind of an interesting dilemma that we have in, because we're supposed to do some things ourselves. You know, God wants us to walk by faith, but that doesn't mean we sit on our butt and do nothing. It just means... God, I'm living by faith. I want you to direct me. I will go out and work a job so I can have food on the table. I will work a job so I can have the house paid for and the mortgage paid and the and the interest, you know, and the and the taxes all paid. I'll go out and get a job. And I mean, it's not like God. I'm just going to sit in my house and you throw money at me when it's time to pay these bills. God's not going to do that. But when it is something that has to be done, He does. You know, when I first started here at the church, this church was the only thing I was, only money I had coming in. And back then I was being paid $50 a week. Uh, and it was amazing because I basically told God, God, as long as you keep making, paying the bills, then I won't have to go find another job. But if you don't pay the bills, then I will go find another job. And for the first, oh, was it uh, 10 years, God paid the bills. Now, many times I had to work hard at it. I'd do, do computer work. I'd get a side job. You know, I did a lot of work, but when I, money wasn't there, God provided in miraculous ways. But I had to work hard. I had to do the things that I could do to provide. 
and God provided the rest. And then he gave me the job out of the prison, basically twisted my arm to give me that. Because I was asked for and begged to take that job. And I go, I really don't want to take it. I like being a full-time pastor. And basically finally realized this was God's provision to get, get everything taken care of. And so we have to look at what God is allowing and not just sit around and do nothing. But we also don't want to depend on the world. When we're looking for advice, who do we go to? Now, a lot of times people will go to the world and get the world's advice, yeah, which is bad advice most, most of the time. I and mean, sometimes it's good advice, but it's bad. It's not spiritually correct. Yeah. Uh, people will go in, I'm having trouble with my, my marriage. What should I do? Well, well, tell me about it. Well, this, that, and the other. Well, leave them. That is not God's answer. God's answer is love them. Pray for them, you know, minister to them, and see if they will come come back to God. That's not the world's answer. So we need to be careful. Where do we get our advice from? The Bible tells us there's wisdom in many counselors, but make sure your counselors are wise counselors and not giving you the counsel of the world. It's funny when I listen to what's said and counseled around, you know, around the, the prison by these people from the world. You know, I work in the same department as a whole bunch of people that have studied sociology and psychology. And I hear the stuff they tell each other and the stuff that they tell the inmates, and I'm like shaking my head going, how foolish can you be? Most of psychology is not worth anything because it's all based upon the world's way of thinking. Every once in a while, they get something right that matches God's word. It's very rare. Well, who are you listening to? What are you listening to? If it doesn't match the scriptures, it's very bad advice, no matter how good it sounds. You get into finance, and what does finance tell you? If you want to get ahead in the business, borrow other people's money. That, you're literally told that. That was what I was told in, in business school. Borrow other people's money. Don't borrow your own money. Don't use your own money. Borrow other people's money. That way when you go bank, if you go bankrupt, it's their money that's lost, not yours. Sounds wonderful, you know, by the world's point of view. God tells us not to borrow money. Now, we in America violate that all the time in today's world. It wasn't so long ago, you know, for most of us, our grandparents, our great-grandparents would never have borrowed money, would never have taken anything that they couldn't buy right that moment. And they were like, we don't take charity. We don't know. We don't care how bad we need it because basically they base themselves on God's word and says, if God can't provide it for me, I don't need it. And that's how they, that's how they were. And over the years, the further we get from God, the more in debt our people are as, as individuals. And our nation is terribly in debt. You know, our, our nation is getting ready to go into over 50% debt. We can't survive that kind of debt. No, no, no person could survive that kind of debt, and no nation can survive that kind of debt. We're, we're facing the destruction of our country because we have walked away from God's standards. And this country used to be the lender to the world, and now it is the borrower of the world. And that is not a good place to be because the scriptures tell us that the lender or the borrower is the slave of the lender. And it is true. If you if you have the person over the barrel, you can tell them what you do, you can tell, you know, you can make them do what you want. America did that to England when we took over the, the major crime of the place. England used to be the one everybody borrowed from, and then the United States was, and we basically came to a point where it go, you can, you can, well, we can let you borrow this money, but you can only use it for this, that, or the other thing. We want to use it for this. Nope, we're not giving you the money. And now we're in a place where people can start doing that to America. So we're in a bad place. And same thing for us as if you're in debt and you're trying to get loans, they can tell you, nope, not going to give you a loan for that. Not going to give you a loan. We'll give you a loan for that, but it's going to be at 30% interest. You know, so we need to be very careful. Follow God's rules. And so my goal is, I was very stupid. I got into debt. I'm trying to get out of debt. And I'm very close to being out of debt. And so it's important to follow God's rules. And it's easy to forget his rules when we listen to the world. 
because the world's going to say, that's ah, no problem. Just go ahead and do that. Uh, you know, what is this faithfulness to your wife stuff? You know, just go on and have some fun. You know, oh, you're, you're single. Go sow your oats. You have time to, you know, to be, be pinned down later on. Satan lies to us, and there's no benefit in doing what he says, what he tells us. And if we forget God's word, that's exactly where we are. And then we come to a place where Jerusalem was, where they're going to be judged. Eventually, God brings judgment to the disobedient. Even for his children, he's going to bring discipline to us, not judgment, because he's not trying to destroy us, but he will bring discipline. It may be sending us into the wilderness. It might be making us captive for a while. You know, if we're not listening to him. We don't know what it's going to be. Jerusalem, Israel wasn't destroyed. They were taken captive. And God said, you're going to be captive. Now they were told exactly how long they were going to be captives for too. God says, you're going to be captives for 70 years. And he even told them why for 70 years. Because they had not had a Sabbath uh, rest for the land for 70 times. And God says, you didn't let the land rest. I'm going to put you into captivity for 70 years and my land will have its Sabbath. Every seven years, the Jews were to not plant crops and let the land restore itself and just live off the produce from the year before. And God said, I will give you a big harvest on the sixth year and you just let the land rest for, for the seventh year. They never did it. And they never let that land rest. And God said, fine. Here for 490 years, you guys haven't obeyed the rules. You're now going into captivity for 70. And my land will rest. We need to be careful that we obey God. God was patient for 490 years. And then he says, enough is enough. Now, God is merciful. But we do not know when his mercy is going to say enough. We don't want to be testing that mercy. At least I don't want to. Uh, I, I do it more often than I should. But I turn around and repent and say, God, I am sorry. You know, I repent. Help me to make better decisions. And God then takes that repentance and brings us into fellowship with him and says, okay, we're going to fix this, fix this issue. And this is what's so important for us. Are we truly listening to God? Or are we playing games with God? It is so easy to play games with God and say, ah, oh, well, God, you know, I know this is what you want, but uh, I kind of think I know better in this situation. Well, oftentimes we, we may not, probably will never say this, but we'll look at God and say, God, you are just so lucky you have me on your side. If you didn't have me on your side, you know, these things wouldn't get done and you know, look, look how helpful I am and how much I help people. You know, I'm doing whatever it is that you do for God. And God, you are just so lucky you have me. Now, none of us will ever say that. But don't we oftentimes think that? God, you're lucky when I'm on your side. You know, instead of God, I'm lucky you're on my side. Uh, so we want to be able to do that. Uh, verse 3. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction. And because of the great servitude, she dwells among the heathen. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. Judah, the southern kingdom, has gone into captivity. Gone in because of affliction. And this is kind of an interesting word because it's deceitfulness, misery. How they have been treating God deceitfully. And God says... You know, I'm putting you into captivity because of all of this and because of great servitude or the idea that they were serving as slaves and captives. You go, all right, you're going into misery. You're going to be captives because of your disobedience. And it says she dwells among the heathen. Now, we don't fully understand this, but remember to the Jewish people, they were the only nation that mattered. They were the only nation that God cared for. And now they're living amongst the heathen, the Gentiles, with no, with no uh, home of their own. They have been scattered. So heathen means Gentile? It's a, it, heathen is somebody who doesn't believe like they do. Uh, when our 
American settlers came in, the Indians were considered heathens. They did not believe in Christianity. All right. Anybody who did not believe in Christianity was a heathen. For the Jew, anybody who does not who is not a Jew is a heathen or a Gentile. Now, this isn't the interchangeable in this case, but pretty much is. They're now living amongst the Gentiles. This is a terrible thing for them. They're not supposed to touch Gentiles. They're not supposed to buy stuff from Gentiles. They're not supposed to interact with Gentiles. The rabbis told them that Gentiles were, were created to fuel, fuel the fires of hell. Okay? And now they're living amongst all these Gentiles. Awful thing to have happen. Terrible thing for them, for them to have happen, at least in their mind. We're going amongst all those heathen, those Gentiles, those the, the fuel for hell, and we've got to somehow stay pure while we're in an impure environment. And this is going to be something that they're... And it says she finds no rest at all. No rest. She's always being in battle. She's looking at people on all sides of her. It says her persecutors, or those that run after her, literally, have overtaken her between the straits. Now, straits are a narrow, tight place. So if you think something like a box canyon mentality, she's running through a box canyon, can't go to the right or left, can only go straight, and her enemy overtakes her before she can get to the end of this, end of this canyon. Uh, when Israel was leaving Egypt, the picture that they give us in Genesis is they're camped by the Red Sea, and there's walls of mountains down a path that they have followed, so there's no way out. They're, they're fenced in. They cannot get out. And Pharaoh's coming down that, that box canyon, that valley, to take them, and they're going, we have no, we can't, you know, the, the, we're fenced in on this beach. You know, Moses, why did you bring us into such a dumb, indefensible place? You know, and this is the description here. It says, your, your enemy, your persecutors have overtaken you. In, in a narrow place where you cannot get out. It says, the ways of Zion do mourn, the paths of Zion. All right? uh, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. We've said this several times. But when you read Zion, it means Jerusalem, or more generally, Israel as a whole, but specifically Jerusalem. It's a poetic word for Jerusalem. Uh, the ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. So every three years, every year, three times a year, all the Jewish males were to go to Jerusalem and the temple for, for three feasts. Uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, Passover, and for Pentecost. So there were seven feasts, but only three of them did they all have to go. The rest of them, the, the, the really good, righteous people went to all of them, but you had to go as a male to three of them. And so he says, you're, you know, your Zion mourns because this people aren't coming to these feasts. Now, technically, they weren't coming before that very much, but now they're definitely not coming. There's no temple to go to. There's no Jerusalem to go to, basically. It's been reduced to, they've knocked down the walls, they've taken down the temple. There's a few buildings around, and that's all that's left when they get done with this. He says, uh, all her gates are desolate, her priests sigh or mourn, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. What a picture we have here. They're all grieved. Everything is nothing but sadness. This beautiful city that everybody comes to three times a year is gone. The priests have nothing to do. Their temple has been destroyed. Uh, all of this is going on, and this is what Jeremiah is looking at and saying, Look how bad things are. Everything is falling apart. Everything has gone wrong. God, how could you let this happen to your city and to your people? And this is a sad moment for them. It could possibly be the way some Christians in the Middle, middle uh, Ages, Dark Ages felt when their cathedrals or churches were turned, turned down burnt, where people were persecuted and the place where you go to worship God is destroyed. God, how can you let the building be destroyed? And God says, I'm not, I'm not the building. This is what he's trying to teach them at this point. I'm not, I'm not the temple. I am not the city. Matter of fact, I'm not even you people. 
because I am bigger than all of this. Uh, her gates are desolate, her priests sigh or mourn, her virgins are afflicted or grieved, and she is in bitterness. This is a picture of total sadness. And this is where the people are. Their city, the one that they trusted in, the temple. Nothing could go wrong with this building. You know, God would never destroy the temple. God would never let his, his city be destroyed. And here they are with destruction. Yeah. Uh, we don't really have, I kind of say, you know, maybe our capital being destroyed, but we don't really think of our capital in quite the same way that they did Jerusalem. This is a huge deal for them. Everything they trust in is gone because they're not trusting in God. And this is why it's so important for us. Who is our trust in? What are we trusting in? Because Jerusalem and Israel... Israel was trusting in Jerusalem, not God. They were trusting in the temple, not God. And God is saying, let's get rid of, let's get rid of the idols. And God tends to do just that. Uh, does just that. He will take away what is going on. He will take away whatever we think our trust is in. Because he is going to be what we trust in. If our trust is in anything but God, God will slowly take away anything that is not him to make us trust in him. Now, the Jewish people did not really turn to God right away, but he's saying, I am not, in the, I am not the temple. I am not, I am not the city. I am not even you people. I am for everybody. And this is what's really important for us is are we really worshiping God? Or is our focus on anything else? Anything else is, is going to be it. You know, maybe it's my Christian radio. I listen to my Christian radio all the time. God, this is this is this is what I need. And I'm and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not belittling these things. Reading the Bible is good, coming to church is good, listening to Christian radio is good. But if we're placing it above God himself, we're doing just what the Jews did and, and, and making an idol out of something. You know, so we, and it's a very fine line between having an idol and really appreciating how God is using something else. And we need to walk that line very carefully. Now, like I said, I'm all for coming to church. Don't get me wrong. God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves and so much more as you see the day approaching it in Hebrews 13. We are, to, we are to get together. We are to meet together. But if my focus is that the church is what's important and not the God of the church, then I am focusing wrong. If my focus is on the gifts and the blessing that God is giving me rather than on the giver of the gifts, I'm looking at the wrong thing. And we need to always remember God behind it. You know, God's behind all of this stuff, and not just me. And we need to keep this in mind of who God is and what he's doing and always focus on him. And not all the stuff, not all the, the side fittings and everything. And if our focus is on God, then everything will be where it's supposed to be. And God will be lifted up and he will be He will be. Uh, rejoiced in and we will be able to say it's all about God and that is what's so important any other focus then God will eventually destroy what our focus is in he'll take it away he'll, he'll destroy it now if your focus is in the church he might literally take the church building down but he might also put you in front of a lot of people that are going to be people you don't like and say well you don't even want to come to church anymore God, my focus wasn't on you. It was on the church. And look at all these terrible, miserable people. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's people in the church that are going to irritate you if, you if you let them. Our focus can't be on the people of the church. Our focus is in God and worshiping him and then edifying one another and working in that environment to lift up God and focus on God.
when we're reading the word of God, we should meditate on God and say, God, what is your message for me today from this word? Not, I've got to get through from, from this point to this point. There are times when I sit down to read my three, three chapters and I get stuck and end up starting a study in the middle of it all. And you know what? That's wonderful. Doesn't lead to finishing the, the whole book, in, the, whole, the whole Bible in a year, but God teaches me something that's wonderful to learn, wonderful to, to gain. And that is more important than the get through the book in a year mentality. And you all know I'm very much on this. I'm get, you know, reading the Bible through every year, and it's a wonderful thing to do. But we cannot let that become a God for us. Yes, it's a wonderful thing. It's God's book. But it is only the book. The living word is in it. And if we don't concentrate on the living word, then we've got a problem that's going to be, be an issue with this. And that's where we're going to stop today. We didn't get too far in this uh in this chapter. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you are that, that you have taught us. We ask you to help us to learn to focus on you in all that we do. And do not let us forget that you are the one that's important. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.